0: Good morning. Let's all make our ways to our seats. It's good to see you. Uh, There's a lot of new faces. We're glad you're here. My name is Josh. I'm normally the guy on stage helping uh, with the music, and Pastor Israel uh, is normally in this role preaching. We decided to switch it up for this week, uh, but as we move forward, obviously in the weeks to come, We'll resume next week uh, through the study of the book of Matthew with Pastor Israel. For this week, we're going to uh, switch it up to Acts chapter 18. Hey, there's a bit of feedback up here. If you can just maybe turn that down a bit. And then for those of us uh, ready to go, please stand up, open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We'll read together, and then I'll have you sit down, we'll pray, and then we'll get uh, ready uh, to dive into our study. So Acts chapter 18 we'll actually pick it up in verse 18. And this is what it says. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancria he had his he he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Pray with me. Father, as we open your word, we pray, God, that you would open our hearts, open our ears to hear that which you have for us. Lord, we confess that we are, by nature, a people that that is stiff-necked, hard-hearted, slow to learn. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would enable us to receive your word, that we would be encouraged and edified and that we, your people, would glorify you. And we ask these things humbly in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Still with your Bibles open, go ahead and look at verse 18. And you can follow along on the screen if you'd like. But in verse 18 of Acts chapter 18, it begins by saying, After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila at Sancria, it says, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. That is a jam-packed verse. It says uh, right off the bat, after this. After what? What just took place uh, in this chapter? Well, if you quickly look at Acts chapter 18 verse 1, you'll discover right away that Paul enters the city of Corinth. He's all alone by himself. He had left his friends Silas and Timothy in Berea in the district of Macedonia. He's by himself by the time he gets to the city of Corinth. And he arrives with a bit of trepidation. He's been to Athens right before the city of Corinth. He was ridiculed and mocked by some of the Stoic philosophers. They look down on Paul. They're like, this guy's a babbler. He doesn't know know, philosophy like we do. He was all by himself, so he didn't have the friendship and companionship of his buddies. Immediately after Athens, from chapter 17, we're in chapter 18, and again, he's still by himself. His buddies haven't caught up to him. And then he looks about the city And he notices that this city is unlike any other city that he's been to before. This one, for some reason, causes fear and weakness and much trembling. Now, if you know anything about Paul and his demeanor, he wasn't easily terrified. Those who opposed him never moved him or shook him. But for some reason, now he's in the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18, and he's fearful, and he's weak, and there's trembling. And you might ask, how do we know? Because he would later write to the Corinthian church. He, he goes to the city of Corinth. He has this experience. He leaves eventually after a while. And then he would later write the Corinthian church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. In fact, Jesus himself in a vision shows up. If you look in verse 9 and 10, go ahead and skin in Acts chapter 18. Jesus shows up and he says, hey, Paul, don't be afraid. Don't stop speaking. I I know you're afraid because there was something about the city of Corinth that was a little bit different than what Paul had experienced, and it brought about for Paul weakness, fear, and much trembling. We know that the city of Corinth was a place of idolatry, pagan worship, uh, moral corruption, and sexual perversion, and Paul was by himself. But as you go through the book of Acts uh, in chapter 18, what you see is that Jesus really takes care of Paul. And Jesus also shows care for the city of Corinth. And what you'll see right away is that what Jesus does for Paul is he brings Paul to a lovely couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. It's interesting because this couple, uh, this married couple, share the same career path as Paul. They're tent makers, and so does Paul. I love how the Lord does that. And so they share this common uh, experience in their work. But not just that. Aquila and Priscilla, they practice hospitality. They feed him. They encourage him. And Paul continues to get more and more encouraged in this city. But Jesus does something else for Paul. He brings back his friends, Paul's friends, Silas and Timothy. And what they bring with them for Paul is finances to support him so that Paul doesn't have to keep working and making tents. He can actually just preach the gospel. In fact... Paul recounts this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. His friends had previously been in the district of Macedonia in Berea. And what Paul writes to the Corinthians later, he says, Hey, when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, that's Silas and Timothy, they, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Silas and Timothy, they supplied my need. And so we see Jesus taking care of Paul. And then, of course, as I said, Jesus himself shows up in verse 9 and 10, and he gives a remarkable promise to Paul. He says, Paul, don't be afraid. I am with you. So remember my presence, Paul. I'm with you. Hey, Paul, the days, your days of your life are in my hands. No one will harm you. I'm protecting you, Paul. And then thirdly, hey, Paul, I know it doesn't look like it, especially when you look about this city in Corinth, but there are many in this city that are mine. You don't know who they are, but they will wake up at the proclamation of the gospel. And so these promises from Jesus to Paul fuels Paul. And then in verse 11 in Acts chapter 18, remarkably, Paul stays in Corinth for a year and six months. That's a long time for someone who walked in with weakness and fear and much trembling. But we see the care and the love that Jesus shows Paul. And then immediately after that, in verse 12, Paul's taken to court. There's a group of Jews. They are opposed to Paul's message of Jesus. And so there just so happens to be a proconsul by the name of Galileo. He's like a judge. They had an open-air court system back then, and the Jews mount. Uh, an accusation against Paul. It looks like Paul is backed in a corner. He's got no one defending him. The proconsul isn't even a Christian. The Jews make this very uh, uh, strategic case against him. Paul is about to respond. He opens his mouth, but he can't even utter a word because the proconsul interjects, and he says, wait a minute, no, not guilty. I don't want to hear it. Paul, you're free to go. And the people respond, the Jews If you remember, if you were with us, they were not happy with that verdict. In fact, they probably kept pushing their case. Because if you look uh, at verse 16 of Acts chapter 18, look what the judge does to the Jews, who are probably still trying to say, wait a minute, he drove them from the tribunal. Other translations say that these Jews, they were ejected from the court. And then Sosthenes, the leader of the Jews, He was the ruler of the synagogue. For whatever reason, got beat up. It's probably because he lost the case. He blew it really badly. And we don't know who beat him up, but he got beat up pretty bad. That's in verse 17. And if you were with us, when I went through the book of Acts in chapter 18, verse 17, what I highlighted was that this man, Sosthenes, was an enemy of Jesus, certainly an enemy of the gospel that Paul proclaimed. But then something might have happened after he got beat up. And not everyone agrees, but this is what I think happened, because if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, I, Paul, I am the author. I'm called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And there's another author who's writing this letter, Sosthenes. And so sometime probably after he got beat up, the message of the gospel of Jesus transformed him. And he ends up being a co-author of one of the books of the Bible. Now we pick it up in verse 18 because that's the after this. And it says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer. He's still in the city of Corinth and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila, that lovely couple. And at Sancria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And I think at this point, it might be beneficial if we just pulled up a map to figure out where are we, right? And so if you weren't anticipating map day, Congratulations, today is map day, and we're going to go through a map. So let me just show you where we're at right now in our text. Verse 18, we are still in Corinth. This is where Paul had first entered with fear, trembling, weakness. And it says that he wants to go all the way to Syria. He's going to set sail all the way to Syria. But before he goes there, the text says in verse 18 that he first stops in St. Crea, and with him is Aquila and Priscilla in this uh, small little town. And he was under a vow. Now there's two interesting things that we know about St. Crea. Number one, we know that there was a church that was already founded. We know this because when Paul writes to the Romans, and you don't have to go there, but in Romans chapter 16 verse 1, Paul writes to the church in in Rome, and he says, I want to commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at St. Crea that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. And so here's Paul. He's announcing to the Roman church. He's saying, you need help? I know just the right person. Her name is Phoebe. She's been a remarkable support to me. She's in the church of St. Crea, but I'll send her to you. And when she gets there, you better treat her in a way worthy of the saints. And so she ends up going. Paul later says about her, do whatever she may need from you. Whatever she asks, grant it. She has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So that's the first interesting thing that we know about St. Crea, which is where they're currently at right now in verse 18. The second interesting thing, and of course this should catch your attention in verse 18, is that it says, Paul had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And that might be a little unusual for us what in the world is that? Paul cuts his hair because he's under a vow. What vow? Uh, What is the text talking about? What is Luke trying to tell us here? And granted, I think it is a little bit of, there's some obscurity here. We don't know for certain what kind of vow Paul made. He certainly never prescribes it after this. Uh, He doesn't write uh, a church and say, I want you to follow a similar vow that I'm uh, performing here in the book of Acts. But we think that the vow that Paul was under is probably found uh, in Numbers chapter 6, verse 1. And again, you don't have to turn there. You're more than welcome to. But in Numbers chapter 6, verse 1, I think this is the vow that Paul probably made. And here's the Lord. He's talking to Moses. And he, and he brings up this special vow, vow that involves uh, the cutting of hair. And this is what uh, the Lord tells Moses with, with regard to this vow. Numbers chapter 6, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of, of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. In other words, he shall not have any strong drink. In fact, I don't even want him to eat grapes. I I, I want him to separate himself completely when he makes this vow. You'll see that in verse 4. At the end of verse 4, not even the seeds or the skins of the grapes. But look at verse 5. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor razor shall touch his head. He better not cut his hair. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. Now look at verse 6. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. It was understood back then that if he touched the carcass, you were unclean. And so here the Lord says, don't even touch a dead body when you're under this vow. As your hair is growing out, don't touch a dead body. How strict is it? Look at verse 7. Not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean. Because his separation to God is on his head. The hair growing is symbolic of the vow that is being made. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. We know some folks in the Old Testament that had a lifelong vow. Samson comes to mind. Uh, His hair grew and grew and grew, and as it grew, he was under a vow, and his strength was present. And then once the hair was cut, his strength left. You didn't have to make a lifelong vow. You could have made a temporary vow, and I think that's what Paul does here. He makes a temporary vow. The question is why, and what kind of vow is he setting before the Lord? Is it a vow so that he can get closer and more holy and have a greater degree of salvation? Most likely not. In fact, no. If you know Paul's theology, that just wasn't his theology. He never thought that your hair can somehow lead you to uh, salvation. And so what most scholars believe, and I tend to agree, therefore you should too. Just kidding. But what most scholars say is that given the experience that Paul just had in Corinth, where he first walked in fearful with weakness and trembling, and the fact that Jesus came through for him, what Paul is doing is he wants to express thanksgiving to the Lord as he continues to embark on this journey of his. And so Paul must have been thinking, well, what, how can I express gratitude to my Lord? I know. I'll go back deep into the recesses of my Jewishness. I'll pull out this vow and I'm going to express thanksgiving and ask for protection as I set sail. And that's what I think Paul does. He's under this vow. He's saying thanks. He's asking for protection. And so he lets his hair grow and then he cuts it. And what you had to do then is you took your hair and you went to Jerusalem and you sacrificed it. And that's exactly what I think Paul is doing here and you'll see why. And so, Look at verse 19, and specifically verse 20. So Paul has this hair. He's in verse 19. They go to Ephesus, him, Aquila, and Priscilla, and he left them there in Ephesus. He's still in Ephesus, but he went into the synagogue, and he reasoned reasoned with the Jews. That was his custom. Now, what was unusual was that they asked him to stay for a longer period of time, Usually when Paul steps into a synagogue and he starts preaching, the Jews are opposed and they say, get out of here. But over here he has success. And they ask him to stay for a longer period of time. And how does he respond? He declined. He probably wanted to get to Jerusalem right away to complete the vow. And so that's what we see uh, in verse 20. He declines. He wants to go in haste. So if I bring up the map again... Let me just show you what verses 21, 22, and 23 uh, are are getting at. So in verse 21, if you just follow along with me right now, he was at Sancria. That's where Phoebe was sent from to, to the church in Rome. They go all the way to Ephesus. It's Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla. Paul goes into the synagogue. He's got his hair. They ask him to stay. He declines. Aquila and Priscilla hang out here in Ephesus, but he himself, that's Paul, The text says in verse 21 on taking leave of them he said i will return to you you ephesians if god wills and he set sail from Ephesus. in verse 22 it says when he landed at caesarea that's this place here he went up to jerusalem that our text in the esv does not say jerusalem but everyone knows that when the when the text says you go up you're going up on a higher elevation to Jerusalem. And so some of your translations actually put that in the text, and it says that he goes up to Jerusalem. So that's what he's doing here. He goes up, he greets the church in Jerusalem, he completes his vow. Luke never records that he completes his vow, but that's probably the likeliest of of places where he would have done that. And then it says that he goes down to Antioch, and he completes his second missionary journey. Paul's done with his second trip. And what he does in Antioch is he gets refreshed, You'll see that in verse 23 after spending some time there. That's in Antioch. What does Paul do? He departed and went from one place to the next through Galatia and Phrygia. So he restarts this entire trip all over again, and his sole purpose is to strengthen all the disciples. He just started his third missionary trip. And so I love what Luke does. What Luke does is in two verses, he wraps up 1,500 miles of Paul's journey. And he goes... Paul's leaving, we're seeing him go, and I want to turn your attention to verse 24. Back in Ephesus, we're going to look and learn about, look at and learn about a man named Apollos. So Paul is starting his third missionary trip, and at the same time, there's a new person who shows up on the scene. His name is Apollos. So you'll see that in verse 24. So let's look at verse 24. So Paul's already started his third trip. We're back in Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla. Verse 24, it says this, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now listen, we are introduced to one of the most influential, one of the most prolific, powerful speakers in Christian history. We get little bits of clues in this text that tells us the type of person Apollos was. Look at verse 24 in the beginning. He was a native of Alexandria, Alexandria was in Egypt, and it was an important city. It was a very intellectual city. It rivaled Athens. In fact, many believe that at this point, Athens was on the decline in terms of its intellectual capacity, and Alexandria surpassed it. I began to think, how can I communicate to you just how um, academically-centered Alexandria was? And I'm like, what is it in the U.S. that would be similar to Alexandria And then I thought, Massachusetts, Boston, you got Harvard, Yale, MIT. That was Alexandria. If you wanted to impress your friends, what university are you going to? Today you would say, I'm going to Harvard. Back then you would say, Alexandria. And that's where Apollos is from. Uh, He was likely a scholar. He was naturally gifted in speech. Verse 24 says that he was an eloquent man. He had the power of persuasion. He was the type of speaker that if, if he was at a conference and you paid the entrance fee and you were like, man, this, this is a lot of money to get into the conference. There's like 30 speakers, but I don't care because I want to listen to Apollos. That's how powerful he was in his speech. Uh, he uh, would uh, probably... Um, Uh, create just a crowd around and people who just were drawn into the way that he spoke. He was remarkably gifted and talented, and he had this natural ability to connect with his hearers. Uh, Paul, on the other hand, Paul was a great speaker too, but he never, in fact, he said, "I, I don't have eloquence. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17, you don't have to turn there, but Paul says, I did not come with eloquence. And so as gifted as Paul was in preaching, he did not have the eloquence that is described here with regard to Apollos. In fact, if Apollos' students and listeners had a smartphone, which of course they didn't, but if they had a smartphone or some kind of internet-connected device, and they were able to go to ratemyprofessor.com, and they wanted to rate Apollos, they'd give him the highest ranking. Now, you might say, are you sure about that? Yes, let me show you why. All right, so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, again, you don't have to turn there, but what Paul does is Paul writes to the Corinthians and he hears a report about how the believers in the city of Corinth are behaving, and he doesn't like some of the report. In one of the reports, it's, it's shared that some of the believers are quarreling among themselves in terms of which teacher is better, and they're, they're fighting with one another. They're, they're divisive. And Paul says, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people, this is 1 Corinthians 1.11, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Well, what's the quarreling about? Verse 12, he says, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paul, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or I follow Christ. And so what Paul is saying is, man, there's so much infighting. You're trying to figure out who's a better teacher. Some of you say, I follow Paul. Some of you say, I follow Peter. Some of you say, I follow Christ. But he also mentions apollos some of you say i follow apollos now paul corrects that he says don't be foolish i didn't die for you peter didn't die for you apollos didn't die for you follow jesus but paul mentions apollos there's some say i follow paul that's a heavy preacher peter jesus and apollos is ranked among them now of course they should not be quarreling but that does show us that Apollos was a master teacher. In fact, I love what Paul uh, says about Apollos in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul says, When I came to you, I planted, I scattered the seed of God's word. But immediately after I left, guess who showed up? Apollos shows up to Corinth, and Paul says, He watered. So here, Apollos is described as just watering carefully teaching, persuading, encouraging. Of course, Paul would later say, or right after that, he says, yes, God gave the the growth. So I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. But we see Apollos doing the watering. He was a masterful teacher. Large crowds would flock to his sessions. And one of the couples that heard him speak, Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila, That's what you see in verse 25. Look at verse 25 in Acts chapter 18. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. That's Apollos. And being fervent in spirit, he's a passionate speaker. Again, he just draws you in. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So, as powerful and passionate and competent as Apollos was of the Old Testament, he did not fully know all of the ways of God. He did not know fully the gospel of Jesus. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. It says that he taught accurately the things of Jesus. He did, but up to the baptism of John. The baptism of John was just a baptism of repentance. John was announcing, the Messiah is coming. Clean yourselves. Get rid of the filth, repent, because you can't look like this and behave like this when the Messiah shows up. And that's what Apollos would have understood. But he didn't know the full extent of the gospel of Jesus. He didn't know all the ways of God. But what we do know is that he took seriously the word of God. And so when Aquila and Priscilla take him aside privately, that's another sermon, by the way, how to correctly rebuke someone, don't do it publicly and put them to open shame, But what they do is they take him aside privately, and they go over the scriptures. They they, they talk about uh, Jesus, and he begins to learn because he took seriously the word of God. We don't know exactly all the details of what he didn't know, but it's likely that he did not know that Jesus' death was substitutionary. What I mean by that is he likely didn't know that Jesus died on the cross in his place for his sins. If you read the book of Acts, one of the things that Paul does to these Old Testament Jewish scholars is he tells them, you think you know the Old Testament? You think you know about the Messiah? Don't you realize that the Messiah was supposed to suffer and die? And that didn't register with the Jews. And so when Paul makes the connection, the Messiah was a suffering servant and Jesus died on the cross that's when the Jews would would, would get in an uproar. It's also likely that Apollos didn't know that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. We know this because in Acts chapter 19, just next chapter over, Paul actually runs into John's disciples, and Paul says, don't you know about the Holy Spirit? And the disciples go, nope, I don't know about the Holy Spirit. So it's likely Apollos also did not know about the Spirit of Christ. And so what Aquila and Priscilla What they likely would have taught Apollos is this. They would have told him, Hey, Apollos, your sins are pardoned in Christ. I know you know the Old Testament. I know you know the law and how to pursue righteousness, but you'll never obtain righteousness apart from Christ. And so in Christ, Apollos, you are truly righteous, not because of anything of inherent worth in yourself, not because you're able to follow some moral standards of the Old Testament. Apollos would have learned that there is a righteousness that is not of his own, namely the righteousness imputed to Apollos. In other words, all of Jesus's righteousness credited to Apollos by faith. And we know that Jesus's righteousness was demonstrated in his active obedience. Jesus lived out the entire Old Testament perfectly. His active obedience demonstrates his righteousness. But not just his active obedience where he lives out perfectly the Old Testament law, but also his passive obedience. His passive obedience meaning he was a suffering servant who laid down his life. That's passive obedience. And so what Priscilla and Aquila likely told him was, Apollos, great news. Righteousness can't be attained in the Old Testament. I know you're competent. Jesus credits you with his righteousness. And that's probably what gripped Apollos' heart. Now, we don't know for sure. That's, that's a lot of speculation there. But we do know that Apollos did not fully understand all of the ways of God. But once he did, because he took the word seriously, once he did, once he fully understood the gospel of Christ, his faith was strengthened, he took the full word of God seriously, his message became more clearer the gospel went out farther, and there was gospel fruit. There was gospel fruit. And what we really see here in verses 24, 25, and 26 is really what we've been seeing throughout the book of Acts and what we'll continue to see throughout the book of Acts is that the gospel prevails. The gospel prevails. Because this is Christ fulfilling the promise of making his father's name known by his spirit this is jesus fulfilling the promise of teaching the word now you might be asking where does jesus ever make such a promise let me show you john chapter 17. in john chapter 17 jesus is with his disciples he prays to the father and at the tail end of his prayer in verse 25, he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these, speaking of his disciples, know that you have sent me. Now look at verse 26. I made known to, you, I, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Do you know what immediately happened after Jesus prayed this, he he just said, I will continue this work of making your name known. Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. The high priest accuses him. Pilate condemns him. And the people kill and crucify him. But yet he just promised, I will continue this work. Did he fail because he died? No, he had something else in mind. The book of Acts, he's continuing this work to make known the name of the Father, to make known the word, and to also make known to his people. Look at the last four words of his prayer. And I in them. Christ is continuing the work to remind his people that he's not just with them, though he is, but that he is actually in them. And he says, I will continue to make it known. I will continue to make your name known. I will continue to show that the love with which you have loved me may also be in them. And I will continue to make known the gospel, continue to make known that I am with them and in them. That the one seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realm is in you. That Christ is, is seated but he's also in you the divine one the second person of the trinity being very and eternal god who made and upholds the the world this jesus who gives sight to the blind hearing to the deaf strength to the weak friendship to the sinners and tax collectors mercy to the sick compassion to the poor who gives his life as a ransom he's not far away he says, "I am in them. I will remind them of these things." Yes, he sits at, his, at the right hand of the Father, on his throne, in his rightful place, ruling over his, over his dominion with power too great for us to fully comprehend, but he's also in His people." In Colossians chapter 1 verse 27, Paul alludes to this. Paul says, "God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the work that we see Jesus continuing to do. He is going about, do I have to bring up the map again? He's going about the entire region, telling the entire world about the name of his father, preaching the word through his people, and reminding his people that he's in them. One of those people, Apollos. And the lord draws him to ephesus not by coincidence because aquila and priscilla are there and so priscilla and aquila take apollos aside privately they explain explain the way of the lord more accurately apollo receives this very humbly he is serious about the word of god he could have responded negatively right who's a who's priscilla and aquila they're tent makers they didn't go to alexandria what's your degree i make tents i work with leather Yeah, so maybe you should sit this one out, Priscilla, Aquila. I've got this. I'm studied. He doesn't do that. He's humble. He receives the word. He's serious about the word. And he's gripped by what he just learned. And now he's fueled to continue the work. Look at verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, by the way, the capital city of Achaia, as we learned before, is Corinth. So we're seeing Apollo slowly getting closer and closer to Corinth where he will do the watering when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him. These are the brothers in Ephesus. And so they wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, now look, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Verse 28, I love this. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Other translations say he was vigorously refuting the Jews. He kept doing it. The word for refuted is an imperfect tense, meaning he kept refuting, he kept refuting. Uh, he was a master. And now he's a master even in apologetics. No wonder Paul said, I planted, but Apollos watered. Ultimately, God caused the growth. Why? Because Jesus is fulfilling the promise of making his father's name known. Jesus is fulfilling the promise of getting the gospel out. Jesus is fulfilling the promise. Of reminding his people that he is in them how do we apply this passage paul leaves he begins his third missionary journey we turn our attention to apollos a remarkable preacher what do we do with this well let me give you two big ideas one of the first things that i appreciate about this passage is the way that it paints the scriptures in a realistic light, or oh, I'm sorry, the way it paints the church in a realistic light. In other words, the church had some very shining moments, right? Paul, a great preacher. Apollos, a great preacher, but it also had some refining moments, right? Like there were some shining moments, and then some eh, there's some refinement that needs to take place. I mean, some of the greatest leaders, like Paul, he admitted to having Fear, weakness, trembling in the face of gospel opposition. Other leaders, like Apollos, didn't have all the ways of God fully understood. Those were some refining moments. There were some shining moments as well, where others came alongside each other. Silas and Timothy, he helped, and they helped, and they supported Paul. Other shining moments, Priscilla, Aquila, they practiced their warm hospitality. They encouraged Paul. They wisely, privately pulled Apollos aside. Some other maybe not so clearly understood things took place. Paul making a special vow. Okay, there's some baggage from the past. All right. He never prescribes the church to ever do this again. Uh, the church in Saint Crete. here's a shining moment. They were established. Phoebe was a wonderful help. Um, another refining moment, though, the church in Corinth. They quarreled among themselves. They were divisive. Paul, at one point, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he goes, all of these reports, uh, there's division, there's an incestuous relationship, you're taking one another to court, you're abusing the gifts, you don't even know how to take communion. And in chapter 4, he goes, do you want me to come to you with a rod? you want me to whip you into shape? Or with love? He ends up coming back with love. But there's some refining moments. I think that's helpful for us, right? Some of us may have this unrealistic picture of what the early church was like, that it was just perfect, pristine. It had some refining moments. And for me, that that, that encourages me greatly, because as I think about church today, yeah, there are some shining moments. But look around the room. (laughs) Major opportunity of refinement. Look at the guy up here. Refinement. We're going to make mistakes. Some of us might be more advanced than others but we encourage one another we build one another up we're like aquila and priscilla we're like silas and timothy we're like phoebe we're helping we're not all there yet we'll never all be there yet we won't none of us will be there yet until we enter eternal glory but in the meantime there's going to be some shining and refining moments so listen don't run away stay put be refined if the church is serious about the word Then stay put. There's going to be some shining and refining moments. But number two, the other thing that I think we can apply from this passage take the word of God seriously. Apollos did. This is the work of, of, of Christ. He wants to continue to make known his father, his plans. We must take the word of God seriously. And we see this in various ways from our study this morning. Think about that. Priscilla and Aquila, they take the word of God seriously. They practice warm hospitality, wise counsel. Silas and Timothy, as I mentioned earlier, they brought financial support to Paul. And Jesus himself shows up in a vision in the middle of the night, giving Paul a promise, threefold promise. Paul right now, he's taking the word seriously. He's going on his third missionary journey. He's strengthening the churches. He's proclaiming the good news. Apollos receives the guidance, and then in, in turn he goes and he encourages the brothers. Phoebe, as I mentioned, leaves Sancria to go to Rome. She's going to help the believers. They take the word of God seriously. This was their preoccupation. You can tell that they did not consider the word casually or carelessly. And let me just say this: when we don't take the word seriously, we will be in danger of being either hard-hearted, self-confident, or worldly and ineffective. I'll say that again, and I'll show you where I get that from. If we don't take the word seriously, we are in danger of becoming hard-hearted, self-confident, and worldly and ineffective. We studied this with Pastor Israel a few months ago in Matthew chapter 13, where Paul gives, or Jesus gives a parable of a sower who just casts the seed, the seed representing God's word. And it lands on different types of soil, some hard, some rocky, some thorny. And so Jesus explains this. The disciples say, what does this mean? What is this parable of the sower who casts out the seeds on all kinds of different soil? So Jesus explains in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 13, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, This is what was sown along the path. This is the first path. It's a hard path. It's hard. Here's path number two, or soil number two. As for for what was sown on rocky ground, that's the second one. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. That's a key phrase. That's self-confidence. Endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away, will not stand. Here's the third as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. What Jesus is getting at is you must be number four. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Listen. Have you become hard-hearted? When you hear the word, is there a carelessness, a casual hearing, or a casual approach to it, or even a cynical approach? That's the seed that was thrown along the hard path, not on soil. Are you hard-hearted? Or have you become one with false joy? Jesus says, you're in a dangerous place. You receive the word with joy, but you will not endure to the end because the seed is grounded in self. It will not take root. Seed grounded in self will not take root. And so there's this, um, there's this attitude of trying to show yourself a lot more confident, than you should be that you're really strong and you're successful and you might fool some people here and there but you will not stand jesus says in verse 21 it endures for a while but when difficulty arises on account of the word you will not stand you hear the word you think how strong you are to to, to, uh, to apply the word by yourself in your strength with confidence you're smiling all the time you you give off an appearance of joy and then suddenly opposition comes and you don't stand There's too much confidence in yourself. We think that we're stronger than we really are. That's flattery. What the Bible says is you're not that strong, but Jesus is. Trust in Him. And ask the Spirit to apply the Word so that you're not hard-hearted or or self-confident. And ask the Spirit to make your soil of your heart good because you can't make it good. We need the sower to make it good. Or perhaps... You're overly concerned with the cares of the world. Your mind is so preoccupied on the things of the world. It's all you think about. It's all you do. It's all you pursue. It's all you chase. Maybe you, you wonder, if, if even financially, if I just hit this mark, I'll be secure. And your days are spent consuming worldly things, chasing after lesser things. You will get choked the word will get choked out and you will be ineffective some of you some of us were ineffective we wonder why pursuing worldly things we're treating the word casually carelessly not seriously but here's apollos priscilla aquila paul timothy silas phoebe they deal with it seriously See, what we need is we need for the sower, Jesus, to make the soil of the heart good so that when you hear and receive the seed of God's word, you will bear the fruit of the sower's work. We, by nature, have soil that's hardened and hostile to the seed of God's word. All of us. We, by nature, have soil that's hardened and full of thorns and thistles. By nature, the soil of our hearts are covered with such a deep stain of sin that we need one outside of us to change the soil. One who patiently cares for the ground and one who ultimately makes it good and causes the growth. And that's what Jesus, the great sower, does do you see how just the deep love of christ we don't see his name right here or him physically in the book of acts but you have to see the work that he continues to do he's patient with apollos patient with you and i he's caring he's faithful he's actively engaged he's in his people he brings apollos to priscilla and aquila after the Lord uses Priscilla and Aquila. Apollos wants to encourage the brothers. Jesus works on the soil of Apollos' heart, the seed of the scriptures, taking deeper roots. And Apollos, after learning with greater measure from the scriptures about Jesus, his heart's affection explodes for Jesus, and he cannot help but encourage other believers. In verse 27 of the book of Acts of 18, chapter 18, He just went and he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. The sower continues the work. Jesus is that sower. He continues the work. He continues to make known the truth of God's word. He continues to make it known that he is in his own. So here's what I want to say as we wrap up. Let us not be a people who take the word of God carelessly. I think we're in danger especially since by nature our hearts are hard. Let us not be a people who take the word carelessly or casually, lest we become hard-hearted, self-confident, worldly, and ineffective. Rather, by the grace of Christ, may we become a church that takes the word seriously, that takes discipleship seriously, encouraging one another seriously, caring for our own seriously, The observing of communion, seriously. Singing together, seriously. Praying, seriously. Gathering, seriously. All fueled by the deep love of Christ, empowered by his spirit to the glory of God. So let me wrap up with a prayer from one of um, the prayers of the Valley of Vision. I think it really encapsulates, encapsulates, I'm pronouncing that wrong, that really highlights. Uh, not an eloquent speaker, by the way. Not Apollos. Josh, nice to meet you. All right. Uh, that I really think brings home uh, the truth of, of handling the word seriously. And once we do that, the way it affects how we engage in gospel work. You can follow along as I read O Savior of sinners, thy name is excellent, thy glory high, thy compassion unfailing. Thy condensation, wonderful. That's him stepping down to this earth. Thy mercy, tender. I bless thee for the discoveries, invitations, promises of the gospel. For in them is pardon for rebels, liberty for captives, health for the sick, salvation for the lost. I come to thee in thy beloved name of Jesus. Re-impress thy image upon my soul. Raise me above the smiles and frowns of the world, regarding it as a light thing to be judged by men. May thy approbation, the, the seeking of your will and pleasure, may that be my only aim, and thy word my one rule. Make me to abhor that which grieves thy Holy Spirit, to suspect consolations of a worldly nature, to shun a careless way of life, to reprove evil, to instruct with meekness those who oppose me, to be gentle and patient towards all men, to be not only a professor but an example of the gospel displaying in every relation, office, and condition its excellency, loveliness, and advantages. How little Have I illustrated my principles and improved my privileges? How seldom I served my generation? How often have I injured and not recommended my Redeemer? How few are those blessed through me? In many things I have offended. In all, come short of thy glory. Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Pray with me. Father, by nature... Our hearts are guilty. They're hard, they're self-confident, chasing after lesser things. Lord, we often handle your word carelessly, distracted by many other things that hold little to no eternal significance. And so, Father, we come to you with our hearts prone to hardness, asking that by Your Spirit You would soften the soil, You would make it good, and that Your seed would take deep root, that we would take the Word seriously. Help us to be a church that encourages one another, builds one another up. Remind us, Lord, that there will be shining moments, but there will also be some refining moments, and all of these things are the work of Your beautiful Son and Your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged as we learned once again that your excellent Son, Jesus, is in his people. May that encourage our hearts as we go about our day and weeks and months ahead, if it is your will. Lord, we thank you that you're always with us. We thank you that you're present. And so, Lord, may you, by your word, grow your church, strengthen your church, and help us, Lord, to be effective for gospel work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.